Hi there guys, this is Liam from the Punks and Pubs. You're going to be listening to me in a second ramble about some shit with someone. This is an advert from the off, just to let you know, but the reason that this is an advert is not because someone's paying me, it's because I've just been happy with the service I've been provided. Merchstore.co.uk are a bunch of guys who have printed my t-shirts for me, the Punks and Pubs t-shirts, go check them out, and they've been nothing but amazing. The reason that they've been nothing but amazing is because these guys know difficulties of getting your t-shirts printed for a reasonable price they happen to be in bands so they know the process of going to someone and then checking something and then the it's just it's just a long drawn out process but these guys have made it really simple for me and the price has been amazing and the quality of the t-shirts are great so go and check them out merchstore.co.uk i can't make you do it but i would definitely recommend that you do it there you go i'm off uh, here's the intro music. I'll talk to you in a second. Oi, oi, you punks, go on my pub! Welcome to the Punks in Pubs podcast. My name is Liam Bird and I hope you are well. Happy New Year. Can we still say that? I mean, it's the 16th of January when I'm recording this. At what point do you stop saying Happy New Year? I'm going to stick with the 31st. That's when I'm going to stop saying Happy New Year. After the 1st, when it's the 1st of February, if you come up to me and say Happy New Year, I'm going to spit in your face and call you a cunt. Because the year would have already gone shit by then. You already have a good idea of how well or how bad your year is going to go by the 31st of January. So don't test it. Just don't. 1st of February, cut off. There you go. Liam has spoken. Don't say Happy New Year after that date. It would seem a lot of you enjoyed the last episode. Thank you. Uh, With Jeff from The 100 Club. Got so many positive messages on social media. It was actually a bit weird. Everyone loves a good compliment, including myself. I've got an ego like everyone else. If you did enjoy last week's episode, then why don't you do something positive and go and rate and review on iTunes or whatever podcast streaming service you use. If you want to support the podcast financially, go pick up a t-shirt. They're now being sold on Etsy. Just type in Punks in Pubs podcast in the search engine and you will find the t-shirts. All money made go back into the podcast, paying for travel, new equipment and such. So that's all the information on how you can support the podcast. Let me tell you what I give to you for your support. Episode 31 is me sat in Royal George Bar in Soho, London, talking to the director, Jen Wexler, producer, Heather Buckley, and for a short amount of time, actor, Chloe Levine. Together, they created the award-winning new horror movie, The Ranger. So Jen, Heather and Chloe were over for Fright Fest in London uh, around autumn 2018. So we had a good chat about the movie. If you don't know what the movie The Ranger is, uh, let me give you a quick synopsis of the movie. I'll try it in my best horror movie voice. Here we go. Team Punk's on the run from the cops. You know what? Scrap that. I'm not doing that. That just sounds fucking weird. Team Punk's on the run from the cops and hiding out in the woods. Face off against local authority, an unhinged park ranger with an axe to grind. That was shit, so what I'm going to do is actually play you the trailer. This trailer is actually made for it to be watched on YouTube, but I actually think it comes across quite well in audio, so here we go. Here's the trailer. About what happened. We did what we could. No one will know. You're a wolf, Chelsea. Don't you ever forget that. And don't you ever forget me. Welcome to the happiest night of your life. (laughs) (laughs) Briggs, yo, we out. Stabbing a cop is serious time. (laughs) 
Chelsea's got a place in the woods. My uncle died there. You really want to be a part of this? Like classic outlaws. Yo, Chelsea, that guy bothering you? The mountain's closed. It's Chelsea's mountain. She got a house up there. Chelsea, tell him. How about that? It actually exists. Cheers to being alive. Hey. Do you remember me? It's all kind of a blur. How'd you end up with a crowd like that? Don't be a beer. Girl, I remember wouldn't be running with them kind of kids. I mean, we should leave this place. Relax. I mean, it was a really bad idea. We need to get her to a hospital. We can't get her to a hospital. Well, we have to try. Best to put her out of her misery. Sorry, kids. Gotta keep the forest clean. If you want to see that with your own peepers, uh, you can. You can go check out the trailer on the Punks in Pubs social site at Punks in Pubs. <laughs> I was fortunate enough that I got to watch the movie uh, before I interviewed Jen, so I kind of had an idea of actually how much passion Jen actually had for the punk genre. The movie is scattered with a great soundtrack that features bands such as Atomic Age, The Authorities, Black Lung, The Avengers, Dayglow Abortion and Fang, just to name a few. And producer Heather's love of the genre is about to come apparent from her first breath in this interview. Trust me, she's a big punk fan. So what can you expect from my natter? Of course we talk about the movie The Ranger and I make the comparisons of being in a band to making a movie. We reveal what horror movies scared a living bejesus out of us and what actually scares us now. Jenna and Heather talk punk and discovery and Chloe explains how discovering punk for the first time during this movie has led to her taking on the punk rock attitude into her real life. As well as all that, we talk about women being seen to create movies and is being dubbed a B-movie like being labelled a pop-punk artist. I will explain how you can download and pre-order a copy of The Ranger at the end of our chat. And as always, your band close out the show. This week is a band coming at you from the mile-high city of Denver. They're called The Lurchers and well worth sticking around for. But before that, there's this. This is episode 31 with the creators of The Ranger. I'll talk to you in a bit. Are you also from Jersey then as well? Okay, we'll we'll talk about that. Okay, (laughs) so we are in uh, the edges of Soho. We're at the Royal George Pub. Fright Fest is still in full swing, and sat opposite me is director Jen Wexler. If you say hello, so people know your voice. Hey, this is Jen. And then next to Jen is Heather Buckley, producer. Heather, if you could say hello. Hello, this is Heather Buckley. There you go two voices now you know who they are so yeah well done i think you need to get like kudos from the off it seems to be that the the movie's being received well you were the first female director to open up fright fest it's only been what nine years going so congratulations <laughs> is it nine years. 19 years well, whatever it is i mean it's, it's a bit too long and for them to like give themselves a pat on the back is a bit like uh, should you really be doing that? Also, you guys... Uh... Well, that's an interesting uh, factoid is that I used to write for Fangoria magazine and we were talking about the beginning at the beginning of the movement with um, one of the editors about why, you know, the needing women filmmakers and divorce voice 
works were important. And I go, hey, how many times has a woman filmmaker, like a woman's film, been on the cover of Fangoria, which was running much longer than Fright Fest? And it was three times, and it was Mary Heron, of course, and Mary Lambert twice. Wow. For, uh, for uh, so Pet Cemetery two, 1 and 2. Two yes. women. Two women. In the entire run of Fangoria. So, so those two people, for people who might not know who they are, can you explain who they are? Mary Heron uh, directed American Psycho, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, and Mary Lambert directed Pet Cemetery, which is also a fucking amazing movie. And the sequel. And the sequel. Which has the great Clancy Brown crazy performance in it. So the movie that you've directed is called The Ranger, and I was lucky enough that someone sent me a stream and I watched it the other night, really enjoyed it. Uh, there's a part that made me chuckle so hard uh, where someone blows into some batteries yeah. to try and make the walkie-talkie work. Yeah. Oh my God, I pissed myself on just that small little scene. made me, I, I loved it, it made me chuckle. Yeah. Uh, how do you find this? How do you find coming to another country and basically doing these kind of interviews? Like, Do you enjoy them or are you like, fuck off I just want to make my movie and then you just watch it I don't want to do this sort of stuff I've watched the ranger a bazillion times I pretty much know the ranger better than I've ever known anything in my entire life there's nothing I'd rather do than talk about it I'm having so much fun meeting people um, talking to them like it's you know there's a ton of filmmakers here so I'm seeing other movies talking to them about their movies hearing their thoughts on the ranger and I mean we love film festivals we love the horror community there's nothing I'd except I do my favorite thing in the world is, is making movies my second favorite thing in the world is going to film festivals and watching movies Part of these, these these kind of films that there's an interesting conversation around being a female director, sort of the uh, the characterization of the final girl in the film. And I think even us, we find new layers about the film coming from just conversation and are also people who love the film as well. Yeah. And what's especially important, what I've seen, and I think I first saw when it premiered at South by Southwest, is that the amount of like females, just civilians, who find the nuance and such hope and just love this movie so much for the nuance that's in there when it comes about female identity and the fact that Jen is a first-time, not filmmaker, because she has an exquisite uh, producing career, but a first-time director. And so many have run up to you and went, you know, I think I could do it. Like, with just, I think some were, like, crying. Like, they were so moved that they saw that you made this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's important to... um see people doing the things that you want to be doing I don't really feel that I had enough female role models I've had plenty of male mentors and they've all been fucking amazing and I love and am so grateful uh, for everything that I've learned from them but I haven't really had a female mentor before there's just something nice in seeing you know seeing diverse people telling stories yeah Jen and I would talk about like her mentoring all the time for me it's like no one has ever wanted to mentor me she's like oh, she could do it it's like it feels like she could produce this feature no yeah. problem do it? I mean we're going to talk about how you ended up uh, producing because am I right in saying this is both your first times that you have Jen directed and uh, Heather produced a feature film feature film so I mean how did you actively find yourself in- involved in the movie and, and, and I remember right in saying Heather that this is a, this is a movie that you wrote co-wrote with a um, I don't I, I forgot the guy's name yeah so I went to school for screenwriting and my classmate Jocko Farino wrote a version of the Ranger while we were in school together and I just like love the idea I love the concept of punks going up against this park ranger and um, we just we didn't know what to do with it at the time because we graduated and we had to learn how to be adults first and pay our rent and things like that um, but eventually I started producing for Glass Eye Picks I learned how to make movies and uh, I was thinking about what I wanted to direct for my first feature and I remembered Jocko's script so I called him and I asked him if he could find it and if we could like work on it together and uh, if I could direct it and he was super down and then um, in terms of Heather coming on board, uh, I when we felt there was a draft there that I was really excited to share, Heather was one of the first people that I shared it with. That is very true. And I was going to mention about your, your producing thing. It's not only like, Den's not sort of like just a nuts and bolts producer, you're a creative producer as well. Mm-hmm. Is that you collaborated very closely with the filmmakers that you work with, which is important to know. Uh, what happened is that like how I, how I came to producing is that it was a fine artist first, 
I went to University of Arts where the script was written. Yeah, we all we both we different we graduated different years, but we both went to the same school. Including Jocko, which yeah. is very strange. So we all were into Philadelphia. I did design, I did um like uh I was a creative director, creative lead in advertising for 13 years in Manhattan, running cross-disciplinary teams, dealing with, you know, pitching the clients and doing agency of record stuff. On top of that, I would write for Fangoria and Dread Central with a lot of focus on interviewing. And I would just go to Film Fest and I started meeting people like Jen and Larry. And, you know, I would go to work with like Ted Gagan and things like that. And then at some point, it's like people would hear about what I did in my day job and they were like, oh, my God you should really think about producing films. And I heard it a couple of times when I made We Are Still Here. And also for my, we'd consider the last person that sort of pushed me over the edge was uh, John Fasano, who um, was a director of uh, Rock and Roll Nightmare, saying it's like, you need to leave advertising behind <laughs> and you need to work in film because it was never a trajectory to me. I could never dream where we sort of are today. And Jen uh, gave me the script uh, three years ago just to check it out because we were friends. Yeah. So I was just checking it out, and I just thought, like, here's what I thought the audience would be. Just, you know, writing for that audience, being a part of that audience, and also having, like, the segmentation background. What sort of the music might sound like, because it's, like, it's, cause it's different than the, uh, the type of music that I uh, usually uh, go to in, um, in punk rock. And I used to send her, like... JPEGs on Tumblr and like crazy 80s stuff like just because I was thinking it's like oh like Jen wants to make her film I want her to make her film this is her dream here I'm thinking about you making your film I'm thinking about your cool project and here is some music and then I had this ability through our mutual friend Kim Garland because I was always curious because again this obsession it's like Heather used to really be a producer so it's like Jen do you mind if I pitch this to an investor again never like wanting to work on the film just yeah. like wanting to have Jen's movie made yeah. and at some point I wound up as producer on the project that's actually how that happened but I guess it's just like almost like with Jen's story too is that first time director but not first time filmmaker so like first time like running a multi uh, multidisciplinary like creative project it's not my first time doing it I also have like 150 credits being a DVD bonus feature producer it's like when we were on stage it's like what project are you working on now it's like I produced the Candyman Discarero <laughs> that guy's Scoped it all and shot it all. I do all that stuff. The thing, this, Exorcist three. That's what I do during my day job. People who are going to be listening to this are not necessarily going to be horror movie buffs or movie buffs at all. They're, they're going to listen to it because they they're interested in punk. And we're going to talk about the soundtrack in a sec. But really, they, every one of my punk rock friends all is, all watch horror movies. I mean, that's a large generalization. Yes. I was very <laughs> shocked when I went to CBGBs for the first time and I went, all oh, you guys like horror movies too? Yeah. It was shocking. I mean, but there is a, there is that link between horror and punk. I mean, the, the the first horror film that comes into my hand when I talk about that genre is probably Idle Hands for me from, yeah, from when I was younger. Yeah, I love Idle Hands. So that was kind of like, there was a big punk feel to that. And uh, Killer Driller, is that another one? Where about the, the neighbor was pissed off because the band next door were a punk band? Oh, yeah, that's Abel Affair. Oh, I think you're specifically talking about punk rock. For me, it's like a lot of my friends identify with the, uh, a lot of the villains in the film, which is one reason why I wanted to make sure the ranger came to life. Okay. Is that, is that there's sort of like this anti-hero thing, because who, who, um, who are the enemies of Jason Voorhees? Like cheerleaders, the establishment... Yeah. You know, the beautiful people that he's mauling down, cops. You know. <laughs> there's a lot in common. There's a lot in common. Getting back to the question, though, I mean, how do you gain fun- like funding for these kind of things? Because obviously it's an idea, and then it needs to become something. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, when was, when, when was this first script written, and how, like, how long is it taking for you to, to get to the point where actually you're now showing it at festivals? Yeah, so from the time... Because my feeling is that the longest part of the process is when you're writing the script. Um, at least that's the way that it is for me. So, you know, from the time that I called Jocko and was like, can we work on it? Maybe that was 2014. And we felt that we had an actual script we were ready to share in 2016. We weren't working on the script, you know, that whole time. We had jobs and it was our little side project. We'd work on it on weekends and things like that. When we finally got serious and we were like, okay, we have our script. This is The Ranger. That was March 2016. Uh, we raised our financing over the course of the following year. We shot in spring 2017, and then we premiered at South by Southwest in March 2018. So it was like a two-year process. Yeah. And uh, I, I also just want to add that um, once you have your financing in the bank, it goes really fast. <laughs> we probably had our, you know, 
uh, Money in the Bank in March 2017. And then, like I said, we were at South by March 2018. So the actual making of the movie happened in a year. And before that, it was the writing and the financing part of it. I mean, it is kind of the same as being in a band, I think, making a movie in the sense of you're, you're constantly trying to push an audience to, to positively being, being engaged. And sometimes you don't get the reaction that you want, but it's the motivation of trying to keep going and try and get better and improve. Have you had those kind of stumbling blocks whereabouts you've gone, this movie's just not going to get made, like, we need to move on? There's certainly the feelings of like, oh my God, is this movie ever going to get made? But there's, I, I feel like with some things, you just can't let them go. Even if I'm that person that for five years, ten years, I'm still trying to make the right... Like, I could not just, like, put this project in a, a cabinet and say goodbye to it. Because here you go. Everybody has a lot of good, great scripts in the world. And the way that I look at it, because I, you know, as I mentioned, like, I'm very engaged in the horror community and know what's going on and have a marketing background. When I read Jed and Jocko's work, I had no doubt in the world that it was going to get made. Because it was like, now is the time for the female filmmaker, right? Because here's the thing, like, how do you pitch to investors? So you can have the best script in the world, but, like, what is the angle? What are the different things about it that you could put together to make sure it's successful so it's going to find its audience? It's like, do you know the audience? So you have the script, do you know the audience of this film? So I think it's a little bit opposite of what you're saying. It's like, so the segmentation of the audience is like horror, punk rockers, girl power. We wrote that all off. It's like there's a space in the market for this, a hunger in the market for this, and it's also like these other things that are very successful and became called classics, like Class of 1984, Return of the Living Dead. So there's already like an idiom that exists in the in the in the, in the marketplace, and the idea that it's it was it was glass eye picks. Glass eye picks is always is very beloved in in, in in the community. Jen has worked on phenomenal stuff. I mean, the last thing that Jen worked on was the movie A Most Beautiful Island, which won Grand Jury Prize at South by Southwest. So the idea it's like you're trying to like do a short shot. Through investor, you can't promise them that. But these are things that I consider it's like it's less of a risk, right? And then we have Andrew Vanderhout, Hood River, who did The Woman, Girl Next Door, really great films, things that were theatrical. Well, he's going to come on board too with with the film. That's part of the pitch of what I talk to investors about. But I never felt that this movie wasn't going to get made. It's like because we would do anything on earth you have to do ev- it, as if your life depends on it do you have to pursue getting these projects done because you have to feel like you would literally die if it doesn't get done at any at any price point and so that's what we did so when i get a script you could actually sort of feel this can get made because there's a future where you see the audience and what are the collaboration combinations that's going to help you get funding and make the project more attractive because you're trying to find a, a situation that's not risk. That doesn't mean you're making like a, a movie that's not fucking cool. It's just the idea is that you know the audience and you know filmmaking and you can discuss that with someone who's going to write a check. <laughs> from the movie a little bit and kind of understand you guys a little bit more. Heavy, you spoke briefly about 
Sex Pistols kind of entering your life and you realizing, holy fuck, like that music really speaks to me. Was that the first band that you heard of, like that would be genre of punk? And if so, why why the Sex Pistols? Why was it them? So on the soundtrack of Fear No Evil, because I was a huge horror fan, there was uh, Sex Pistols, Ramones, Suicide, Rosillos. I think it's an unspoken about punk rock soundtrack in movies because I think everyone gravitates towards Return of the Living Dead which is not necessarily reflective of the scene of the time but had a lot of music in it I would and a lot of my friends have similar stories is that when I was young I would see people that looked punk and I didn't know what it was I would read in a lot of high fashion magazines you know just waiting at like the shop right with my mother and I would be fascinated in these corseted looks this crazy hair this makeup and the drama of it because the whole world was sort of like a beige dustbin and within this world were these such inspirational interesting people and I never knew what it was and um, I started like wearing sort of strange things and my my cousin said, why don't you go to Vintage Vinyl in Ford's, New Jersey, because people are dressed like you in front of it. And I used to just, because again, there was no radio station. There was just watching watching that movie, and it was like in, uh, it was in 1988. And I, and I think it was the first punk band that I listened to was the Ramones, because it's the track that played before Anarchy in the UK. And both of those songs, I went to my, uh, my friend, and I said, what is this music? Like, I didn't even know what it was. And she made me a mixtape, which I still have today, which had a lot of great, great stuff on it. And from that era, I would, again, like, go to Vintage Vinyl. I would look at logos. I would go in the punk section. But I also used to because, like, I was, you know, a middle-class kid with not a lot of money. I would go into the city to go to shows, to go to Coney Allen High and CBGBs. And see all the bands play live. Because for $12, you could see everyone live and decide what sort of music that you like. And over and over and over again, it's like the lineups of the New York City shows would be like street punk, hardcore, and ska. And that's sort of like the trifecta that you would see over and over and over again at New York City shows. And again, a lot of English bands would play like Stiff Little Fingers and Menace and Angelic Upstarts. And I, and I love that sound. But I cannot define why, and I still talk about this in my elderly old age, of why, because it's not something that inspired me. It's something that literally is me and feel and felt like how I feel on the inside. Sort of that that sort of incredible intense energy. And when I sit at the bar with my friends, I have like, you know, friends from different countercultures like Psychobilly, Rockabilly, at places like Auto Shrunken Head and Double Down in Manhattan, and I go, after all these years, I still respond to this music the same. And I also still continue to look this way. My look has evolved. This is probably the ultimate form of Heather Buckley, which is like, you know, with the bi-hawk and very sort of like mad match, but you're kind of looking. But it's just, I don't, I can't explain why it was so important. I actually thought I was goth before. I thought it was punk because there was a magazine called Propaganda Magazine, and they looked beautiful. So I had like old pictures from the Batcave in London, and then I listened to Christian Death, and I go, God, I hate this music. And so I knew I wasn't. I knew I wasn't goth, but yeah, it was. It's always. It's always punk rock, and it's specifically that kind of punk rock, which is a lot of like bass-driven, anthemy, like toy dolls, attic sort of uh, sort of stuff. Go for it, Heather. Beat that. <laughs> <laughs> what, how did punk introduce itself into you? Like, what, was there like a family member who introduced it to you, or was it like like the same through a movie? Yeah. No, I actually don't remember how I ended up. At my first punk show, I guess a friend or something was like, oh, come out to this thing. Um, it was a show in like a church basement and in New Jersey where I grew up. And, uh, you know, I grew up in the suburbs. Life was, uh, what did you say? Dusty? Dust? Anyway, it was beige. Dustbin. 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 Okay, so it was also beige in the town that I grew up in, which I actually don't think was that far away from where the town Heather probably grew up in in New Jersey. But anyway, going to shows as a teenager, I started to discover, like, oh, there is this world where you can go and you can throw your body around and listen to this music and, like, feel this, like, like primal thing. And it was just so perfect for me discovering myself uh, as a teenager and discovering that you didn't have to just fit into the, like the suburban box that the rest of your life 
wanted you to fit into. And this was also the exact same time I was discovering horror movies. So I deeply threw myself into horror, watching horror movies constantly, and going to shows at the same time. You know, going to high school every day was a total drag, and I hated it, but uh, those are the things that got me through it. Did you feel that, like, your punk rock friends liked horror movies, too? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, thousand percent. They all did. I was going, like, so you so you have this gear, and you have, like, this music I love, and everyone loves horror movies. Yeah, although I would have to say, I have to say that my discovering of horror was, I felt more of a solo experience. It was... Uh, it was literally me just, you know, going to the video store, getting movies, and then just diving into them by myself and feeling like I was, like, it was like the ultimate rebellion. Like, my parents didn't know what I was watching. I was, like, in the room by myself just seeing these images unfold. And it, it, it same thing with going to shows and, like, throwing uh, my body around. And we recently got invited to the Warped Tour, which was, like, 14-year-old Jen would have been so excited to learn that... Someday, uh, I would be on the list to get into Warped Tour. <laughs> so I brought Chloe with me, and we went. And um, I was like, oh, I was like, I used to be right there. And I don't know, it was such a thrill, like being in the crowd. Um. And Chloe, did you? how did you find the Warped Tour? Did you, did you enjoy it? Did you even get involved? Did you go in there, elbows out? No, I didn't. I, no. I, I'm too much of a scaredy cat to have gotten involved. But it's, I don't know, it was cool to watch. And, uh... Yeah, Warped Tour was pretty was pretty rad. It was a thing when I was growing up too, and I was like never cool enough really to like go with my friends. So <laughs> I think I got to introduce her to. I think it might be its last year. That's yeah, what someone done was now. saying. I think it's no longer a touring circuit. I think now it's going to be one place, and that's it. Okay, it feels like kind of. I don't know. Like I, I feel some weird sense of closure. This thing I used to go to all the time when I was younger, and then I went again. This maybe a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago. They waited for you, yeah. and then they were like done. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Warp Tour. I was gonna say what's interesting because of Jen's experience, because as we know, that punk is local and regional. So Jen was from more North Jersey than I was from, and so there were probably. In central Jersey, where I spent most of my time, there were sort of no basement shows. There wasn't a great access to New York City. So I did that later in my life when I was in college. But if you were from North Jersey, there seemed to be more punk rockers and more sort of basement shows or availability to see shows when you're in sort of like North Jersey or Northwest Jersey. So I didn't start to go to see shows. Like I went to a few shows when I was younger, but I was mostly like an outsider Travis Bickle shut-in. But when I went to college... In uh, Philadelphia, that's when I would go to see a lot more shows. And then after that, spent a lot of time at um, the big venues there, and most of them are closed down. Because I was walking around with some OG punk guy, and he was, like, talking about how sad, like, London has changed. And I said, I could do the same tour on St. Mark's about everything closing down. So I used to go to, like, Tramps, the Continental, Irving Plaza, Roseland, Coney Island High, and the Cyclone Room, and CBGBs. And I think that that's sort of like, oh, in the wetlands. And the only thing that's open is Irving Plaza. And then we go see stuff at the Ballery Electric, but everything else is gone. I don't even walk past where CBGBs used to, used to well, be. Well, right there, with that building site right in front of us, that used to be the Astoria. And that used to be a world-famous London venue. And oh. it's been closed down now because we're doing a crossrail across London. And that's the thing that went. Oh, and man. it it's for me that venue was probably my second home like I loved it so every, it's weird that now my friends got a bar here and uh, you just look out and it's like a fucking graveyard but I mean the, the problem with London though is that rent prices have gone up so much and they venues sure can't are, afford right? yeah exactly I mean we're lucky enough that the 100 Club is still going on Oxford Street that, that's still there um, but even that is under threat because rent is just ridiculous like, and, people and that of- no one could save CBGB's because they had a lot of background and had a lot of friends that worked there and they squatted to try to keep it to try to keep it open to see if anyone would come in the last second to bring money. But it was the uh, I believe it was the BRC that, uh, that finally closed it down. Yeah. Now it's like a high fashion store on the Bowery. But again, I don't I don't try to go next door. I don't try to look at it. I did see a little controversy though that one of your there's like a store that did a front that had CBGBs. Kind oh my of god, it's that like Newark Airport. They have the CBGBs restaurant. That's I think. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> 
They can, they Nothing can more punk rock than. <laughs> but, I, but I always feel that that folks want to have that feeling of that rebellion and freaks a lot of. Um, it's almost something that I want to rebel when I'm at the airport. Fuck the airport. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's something that, that, that Chloe said. Like people will come up to me because the way that I dress, and I always think it's sweet. And even like little ladies, and I go like, why? Why don't you look like this? And a lot of them are just afraid to just be who the fuck they are. It's like no deal. spoke about it briefly is, is about the soundtrack of the movie it's phenomenal clearly that's come from your love of the music and the genre of punk so can you kind of explain a little bit about that and why these bands also playing music can be quite expensive so especially if you're an independent music sorry independent movie did you go to the bands directly how did that work how, how did you end up getting the licensing to be able to use this music so i really wanted the music of the movie to feel like a mixtape i wanted the audience to feel like they were uh, to have that nostalgic feeling of playing a new mixtape for the first time and discovering uh, new bands on it and also hearing some bands that they've heard before on it. Yep. Um, and that's why on the on the soundtrack there's a mix of bands from the 80s, but there's also some uh, modern bands in there also. And then in terms of the movie, I really want it to be like when the punks are in control, you're, you're, their music is dominating the soundtrack, and as they start to lose control, the ranger's choice of music starts to take over the movie. We worked with the music supervisor, Mitta Goodwin, who was a band promoter in in the 80s so he was tight with all of these bands and pretty much the way that it worked is he um, reached out to these bands he told them about the Ranger um, he got them on board and then he came back to me and uh, kind of presented me with uh, these bands and said uh, you know these guys have all agreed to be part of it so if you choose songs that are on these albums these are the ones that they have the rights to you know we could make this happen so then I spent time you know I had my cut and I had um, all these songs and I uh, just spent time listening to them in term- in thematic ways and figuring out what made the most sense thematically throughout the movie and Heather was super involved in working with Mita on that and in getting the punk community involved especially Rotten UK which is our band that plays in the opening warehouse party scene. Oh, is that? Okay, yep. Yeah, so Mina Goodwin came to us via my friend uh, Stacy and uh, Jen's friend Stacy runs Etheria, which is a female-focused uh, genre film fest in L.A., and it's true that Mina is the OG and reached out to a lot of the folks that were involved. When I originally read the script... Um, so I, since I am from the New York City scene, we all listen to New York hardcore, hardcore in general from like Detroit, D.C. and stuff like that. But we listen to uh, street punk, specifically obsessed with English street punk. And that sound is a much more heavier sound. Well, this movie was would be a bit more like giddy and fun that I felt sort of it needed the feeling of in California, which is sort of like this thrash skate punk. Yeah. And the, the legend is it, which is actually a true legend, is that I emailed Stacy and I go, Stacy, do you know any band? that sound like the Avengers and like seven seconds and I gave her this whole list and she goes Heather what if I told you like I could get you something better not only like 
bands that are like this, but someone who knows every one of these bands. And that's when we were put in touch with Mitt. And it was a long process to, again, like go to all the bands directly, figure out what they owned, and sort of do, do a deal directly with him. Yeah. They also knew it was important, you know, being a part of the Rangers awesome, but the idea of being part of a, such a, a wonderful, like, pop culture movie, but then also leaving behind the soundtrack for people to find. Because a lot of times, like, I, in New Jersey, I was watching a movie, Fear No Evil, when I was 13 years old, and I heard Anarchy in the UK, and I went, oh my God, this sounds like me. There is no way that I would have been able to listen listen to punk rock during that time period in New Jersey if it was not in a horror movie. Yeah. So in that, I think Jen has created a film that would be a touchstone for horror fans, people who fucking love like slasher films, Final Girls, Pink Haired Girls, but also to leave that soundtrack behind for people to find those bands and find themselves. We were recently at IFC Center for a theatrical run. The actor that played Abe Bubba was saying like he even missed his gear that he had on. <laughs> something about that chloe's over there and i don't know if she minds having a quick chat as well just because for, for you as an actor um how did you find the idea of punk rock was it something that was alien to you or was it something that you enjoyed or was it something that you kind of got yourself really into and now are you purposely looking at other punk bands and going actually i quite enjoy that uh well i didn't know anything about punk in the beginning and jen made me a mix and I sort of tried to immerse myself and also just like Heather would pick me up and take me to set a lot and so we would listen to a lot of punk stuff in her car on the way to set and now I definitely I mean I discovered a lot of bands that I really still love and I hope that I like picked up things from Chelsea and just the punk aesthetic that like have made it into my actual life you know just like the not giving a fuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nothing. I see right through you. Nobody else seems to think it's true. Nothing. You take what you can't get. Keep people close. Step on that neck. Nothing. You don't believe in nothing. You don't see nothing. That you too could be ever wrong. Nothing. You don't feel nothing. Free everyone. Like a nothing. in the 80s so why was it punk why was it the vision of punk that you wanted as your uh, protagonist why were it them why why not new romantic for instance so truthfully uh the concept came before any of it it was always punks versus park ranger so there was never any question like oh is it a group of goth kids or hippies or whatever that that was never what the movie was and i think that baked into the idea of punks versus park ranger there's just this you know rebellion versus authority at the same time something that was very intriguing to me was while they're total polar opposites of course in the movie the ranger has his own code of conduct that he lives by and the punks have their code of conduct that they live by and they have their uniforms and they have uh, the rules of their worlds and then in the middle of all of that you have the character of Chelsea who is kind of caught in between those two worlds and really she just wants to like shed all of it and, and be herself and figure out who she truly is at her core and I think that when you're in the punk scene, I know for myself, I used it as a way of trying to figure out who I was. You're in this world where people are... It's really, there's an embracing of individuality in that world, and I think that's why um, a lot of people are drawn to it. But even, even then, you have these things you're trying to live up to. So you, for me, it was a great uh, place to discover myself, but to really find myself, I had to just shut it all out punk for myself and my friends is that it's uh, the honor and loyalty of the people that I've known for most of my life 
are as important to me when we talk about the importance of codes, standing by each other and always being a family and being there for each other radically more than what I would consider like civilians would be. Hmm. And this deep, deep closeness because you share the same sort of, I don't know, like code, but also uh, moral grounding on how the, how the world is. Because it's both, because it's a, it's a paradoxical world because it's both hopeful and apocalyptic. It's both funny and then it's like super hardcore. And I always feel that they're sort of like the rebel and the jester simultaneously. So to me, that it's incredibly absurd and you'll find crazy, um, you know, burnouts, but you also find a lot of the folks that I hang out with, it's like they, they love music, they're artists and musicians, and they read existentialism in books, and they're all artists, but they're artists in a way that they're, they have the feeling of the outsider, and there's one thing of feeling like an outsider, and there's another thing of sort of like adorning yourself with, uh, with, the, with, the, with the trappings of that. I almost feel because of the generation that I'm from, it's like in the practice of punk. Because it was it was created by people who are in like in their sixties and and sort of evolved from their uh, in their fifties. So now sort of we're carrying on a, a certain a, a certain thing. I mean, it's it's hard to know. It's hard to know why when I go when I go up to people on the streets who look like me that we're so similar. Uh, it's a community. They- it's like a species of human being. It's the punk rocker. I always talk about whenever I'm at a show. If like if you're in a pit, there is like you said, there's like code. If someone falls down, you help them right back up. If something's kicking off, like you try and come to reason and or take it outside. Like there is that. No cops. No cops is a big one because, like you said, a lot of punks are outsiders and they, they've they've grown and grown up in an environment where they probably felt like they couldn't be themselves. So when they're in an environment where they can be themselves, it's a hundred times them because they know they're safe and it's that safe environment of knowing that. I can look like this, I can act like this, I can sound like this. It's allowing to be, whereabouts I think a lot of the time they're not allowed to be. I was oh, I was always like this, but there's a backlash for uh, pursuing individuality, intellectualism, and art. Hmm. Specifically if you're growing up in certain environments, in a certain class, in a certain parents. No, I, I love the way that you just said that, like allowing one to be, because that is actually for me like the core I mean look the, it's it's kind of like a joke like what is punk what's the definition of punk I mean I always say fuck you is the definition of punk fuck you is the definition of punk but allowing yourself to be you like deep down it sounds like a little tacky a little, when you say it like that but a little after school special but actually like being yourself is the more you know and then we get the little rainbow yeah <laughs> Something I enjoyed throughout your movie is the fact you're trying to come up with punk names. What were rejected? I, I, I kind of I don't want to talk about the bands that, that were spoken about in the movie because I want people to see the movie. But what were the bands' names that were rejected? And you went, nah, we can't have that. Um, well, first of all, I really wanted to include that because that's just like fucking every conversation I had when I was young was oh, and this glass of water. That's my. There's a glass of water on the table. That's why I just said that. But. Uh, that's my new band name. I mean, it just became like a... Th- and it's not... Everybody does that. Um, the only things that we rejected were ones that we Googled, and we were like, oh, that's actually a band. We can't use that one. Very funny story when we were doing the behind-the-scenes stuff. Again, a Bubba story. And then he goes, it's like... So he asked everybody what so, would be their fake... Sorry, Bubba, who plays Abe in the movie, yes. one of the punks. One of the punks, yes. So um, that we, we asked everyone, uh, we interviewed everyone, like, what would be like your fake punk band name and I love that he said Discharge it's amazing <laughs> they're the legendary fucking punk band best and most correct answer are you a big dis- Discharge fan then? that's what's on my backpatch yeah this is great audio by the way for everyone who cannot <laughs> see that <laughs> um, she just turned around and the back of my battle vest is a giant Discharge patch with studs I don't know if this is true but the term B-movie B-movie horror how do you find that? is that like the punk version of pop punk because it can be seen as quite a derogatory term like as in you're still a horror movie why is it a b movie yeah, horror movie i i think the term b movie is something for me i wanted to aspire to making a b movie i like i think the ranger can if somebody calls the ranger a b movie i'm so happy with that i feel like it's part of the great tradition of you know schlocky cabin in the woods movies i'm so happy to have that but I think now we live in a world where people throw around the term elevated genre a lot. 
um, and you have drama movies with genre elements and they're great and I love them and we make them at Glass Eye Picks and uh, I'm a total fan of movies like that but uh, The Ranger was never intended to be that. The Ranger was definitely meant to be a movie in the grand tradition of blood and guts. So this is a question for all three of you then. Like, I feel for everyone growing up, there's a certain point where you watch a horror movie and you go, oh, I probably shouldn't have watched it, I was too young. And it's kind of reflected back to you at some point where you've gone to like Blockbuster, if you remember what they are, people listening. And like, you see the video covers and you go, Ooh, I, I, I don't want this. Like, is there that any movie that you particularly remember where you were younger? Because with me, it was Basket Case. I can remember watching Basket Case with my older brother and I was thinking what the fuck am I watching this for? I'm going to cry myself to sleep. Yeah. Like, what, what movie was for you guys, all three of you? Well, first of all, I used, when I was a kid, I used to love walking up and down the aisles of the video store and just taking in all of the, um, the posters. And my imagination like, just ran wild at what the fuck... What, what the fuck were these movies? And then I would like look across the video store to make sure my parents didn't know I was in the horror movie aisle. And then I was like, okay, they're busy over there. And I would go back to it. Um, but for me, I have that exact memory. Um, when I was a kid, I maybe I was seven years old, and there was like a family gathering, and there were people in another room watching something. And I went into the room, and I saw on the screen the most horrible-looking twin girls... They're dead, ghostly, uh, and it was so fucking scary. And I was like, what is this? I never want to watch this again in my life. And, of course, I've seen The Shining a zillion times now. But at that time, I was like, I can never watch another moment of this ever. The phenomenon that Jen is talking about, which I think I've, I've discussed on social media, is when you discover horror movies via free-range horror that means that you're walking into the den. Like, for example, my father, my earliest experience of being horrified was the um, on the Disney Channel watching the squid in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I was horrified. Then I was horrified with my father watching Poltergeist and the guy peeling off his face and having such, like, and as, like, a little girl in elementary school being so freaked out and, like, having anxiety, but also in the back of my head, because I was incredibly scared of horror films, like, wanting to see it again, and then The Fly. The, uh, the sequence when they turned out. But yeah, like just having your dad or families with little kids around, it's like, let's just watch The Fly and traumatize, <laughs> and traumatize my, chil- uh, my children. But I, it's like I, the extension of that is like actually renting and watching a film when I was like old enough to like look in my books. I should have never watched Clockwork Orange or Wild at Heart at the age of 13. I think way too early for something that intense and has such an extenuated rape sequence. I just wouldn't. Um, I have a very similar experience to Jen. I was at a family gathering. I wandered in. I was like, I'm the youngest in my family. I was like six. I wandered into a room with my older cousins who were watching It, Tim Curry. And it was a scene where the bully gets like dragged in to the pipe in the sewer. I had no idea what I was watching, but that image was burned into my brain for so long. And I didn't even know what it was from. And then when I was a teenager, I watched it again, and there was, like, this whole cathartic thing, but terrified. It's just absolutely terrified. The, the Tim so Curry long. is scary. Like, it's so, it is so scary. scary. I, I was at a Halloween party the other day. Not, well, obviously last Halloween. And I just saw the red balloons. Someone came in with red balloons. I saw the balloons first, and instantly I was like, <laughs> what the fuck? Like, instantly, like, shivers. Yeah, it is horrible. Like movies now to, to, to the what was deemed in this country video nasties is there that idea now that um, when people watch 
the the cannibal holocaust or evil dead it can be perceived as i don't want to say comedic but it, it's not seen as scary anymore why do you think that is why do you think that we've we've built up this intolerance and what 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 now has to happen to make us scared i mean what was the last movie that you watched that was in the past five years that really like scared the shit out of you hereditary I haven't watched that. So. Hereditary is so scary. I'm not going to give yeah. away spoilers, yeah. but uh, I I feel like I have a really high tolerance for horror movies. I watch a lot of horror movies. It's been a long time since a horror movie has freaked me out so much and stayed with me like after I've left the theater. And this movie, for at least like you know like five days after I saw the movie, I was still visualizing shots from the movie and freaking myself out about them. So. Hereditary. I mean, besides Hereditary, it's been a lot. I don't even know if I can think of one that's scared me recently. I agree with Hereditary. Didn't we both watch that at Overlook? No, I didn't. I saw it after that. You saw it after that. So I, I was able to see it at uh, Overlook Film Fest in New Orleans, and all I ever heard because I tried to get into it at South by Southwest, and it sold out. And I was so disappointed in my heart over that. And all I ever heard was just this movie's incredibly scary. Uh, to go back to your question about why people laugh at it, I think because there's a lack of empathy and people want to be above the material. And that is exactly why. And if they don't want to engage with it, it's the same thing like when I would go through a uh, haunted house and, and you know, like tough guys would go, like, you're not going to scare me. That's just makeup. It's like if you're going to take that fucking attitude, you don't deserve to watch Cannibal Holocaust or Serbian film or any of the extreme stuff that's out there. Because I feel if you watch with it with empathy and if you allow the, the films to sort of, you know, envelop you, even the things that like, you know, the Ed Wood, the, the, the Ed Wood films, there's some sort of like strange sort of quality to what you're looking at. This dreamland quality is 100 percent right. I know Larry always jokes about that. And so, I mean, what's the next step then for the Ranger? Like, so you're doing festivals now. When you're here, do you approach independent cinemas and then then you get a distribution deal with that? And also, how can people start looking for it and start start buying it like is it going to go on iTunes How how's it working so right now we're doing a theatrical in New York and LA we're going to be announcing our streaming news very soon um, but uh, in addition to our theatrical we're also like playing film festivals everywhere in the world it feels like all thanks to Heather and our festival booker Joe Yannick Joe Yannick's fucking awesome and uh, yeah, so what I think we decided with this film, the reason it's doing a huge film fest run is that it's a punk rock film, so it should go on tour. And the type of film it is that it's a sort of a fun slasher film that it belongs to all the horror fans on earth. I went to this film fest a while ago called uh, called Night Visions in Finland. It's a Helsinki uh, genre film fest, and that's like an underrepresented market. And to see the sort of hardcore love for horror in an underrepresented market made me believe that this movie or like movies similar to it need to go to everyone people contact me on social media and they go it's like can this play in my state can this play in my country i said if you find me a screen and someone who wants to play it i will send it directly to our booker we have people some of the stuff that we passed out at fright fest it's like some fans made flyers and then uh, we've posted them on twitter and fright fest has like retweeted them so there's been that there's been a little bit of fan art my friend mel made like vomit bags during the screening like handwriting uh, handwriting all of them so it's been it's been great fun but i would look for it you know to come out soon and then uh also the soundtrack we're we're looking at another uh another merchandise uh, sort of stuff but if anyone out there needs to see it it's like if they could find me a theater manager that wants to play it i just kick him over to joe and it's like well let's make a deal and you guys can play it and like book some punk bands for an after show and enjoy it and have, have fun because movies for everyone perfect well chloe jen and hen thank you Thank you so much for having us. Jen, Heather and Chloe for their time. If you're interested in watching the movie, if you're based in the US, you can rent and stream the movie via Redbox. 
The rest of us can pick it up on Blu-ray slash DVD on Amazon. And the movie will be made available soon on the horror streaming service Shudder. All that information is up on the Punks and Pubs socials. Now time for me to say rate and review the podcast. Go pick up a t-shirt and again, follow the podcast on social media at punks in pubs right time to end the podcast thank you to Stephen burke thank you to you for listening and thank you to the band about to play out the show they're called the lurchers they're from denver colorado where it's always 420 and this track is called my own eyes punks and pubs will be having february off so we will be back on the 3rd of march with tom may of the menzingers until then if you're going to a punk show and you see someone fall down you pick them right back up have a good one Bye-bye.